Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, for this, uh, the only space panel uh, that's part of the Global Security Forum. Uh, and so I'm really pleased uh, to have such an esteemed group of panelists here. Uh, my name is Todd Harrison. Uh, I'm the director of the Aerospace Security Project here at CSIS. Uh, and I'll be the moderator uh, for our, our panel discussion today. Uh, I want to quickly introduce uh, my fellow panelists. Um, immediately to my left, uh, we have Audrey Schaefer. She is the Director of Space Strategy and Plans in the Office of the Secretary of Defense uh, for Policy. Uh, and uh, to her left, uh, we have Mark Beaver. Uh, he is the MILSATCOM, Military Satellite Communications Business Area Director at Northrop Grumman. Uh, and then uh, to his left, uh, down the road, we have Tom Carrico. Tom uh, is also CSIS. He is the director of our missile defense project uh, here at CSIS and a senior fellow. Uh, and on the far end, uh, to my left, we have Colonel Punjani. Uh, she is the director of the Operationally Responsive Space Office uh, out at uh, Kirtland Air Force Base. Uh, and so I want to thank them all for joining us here today. Um, this is going to be, a, I think, a really interesting discussion. We're going to be focusing on what are some of the key decisions uh, that need to be made in the next administration uh, on strategic space systems in particular. Uh, and so I want to start uh, uh, going to Audrey uh, and from her perspective uh, in OSD space policy, uh, I thought she could give us some introductory rem remarks uh, to talk about space policy issues at a broader level and how we're thinking about resiliency uh, and other policy gaps that we may have uh, that need to be addressed. So, Audrey, over to you. Great. Thank you, Todd, and, and thank you so much to you and to CSIS for inviting me uh, to participate in this panel. I'm really pleased to be here um, as part of this um, distinguished event. So I, I kind of wanted to set the stage for the rest of the panel um, and provide kind of a general policy backdrop for some of the remarks that my other panelists are going to be making that are more specific to space uh, programs or space architectures. Um, so first I just want to step back and describe a little bit of why this panel even matters, right? Why do we even care about the role of space in our national defense enterprise? Um, and I think it's pretty well understood at this point, you know, all the myriad benefits that space provides to our warfighters, whether that's over the, uh, over, um, over the horizon communications, um, you know, precision guided munitions, or intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance into denied areas. Um, I think what perhaps may not be completely appreciated is how fundamental space is to our ability to project power um, with fewer lives and less force structure at risk. And I think that's really the key point. I mean, if we were to try and retool or retrain our entire defense enterprise to be um, you know, less or even not at all dependent upon space, that cost would probably far outweigh the costs needed to essentially assure the advantages that space capabilities provide. Um, but other countries, you know, would-be aggressors, they know this too, and they know how dependent we are on the use of space capabilities, uh, particularly for power projection, and they believe that if they can deny those capabilities to us, or at least demonstrate their ability to deny those capabilities, either in a crisis or early in the, phase, early, in the early phases of a conflict, that they may deter us from entering into that conflict. And so when we think about assuring the availability or the reliability of our space capabilities, this isn't about assuring space for space's sake. 
This is about ensuring that adversaries aren't um, more likely to pursue conflict overall because they believe that the U.S. response will be blunted because of a lack of space services. So, I mean, our goal with looking at enhancing the resilience and mission assurance of space programs across the board is, frankly, to prevent conflict, to not invite it unnecessarily. Um, So this has been really a growing recognition over the last several years um, within this administration, and the DOD has committed um, additional resources uh, to start to address this problem. Um, We are at the beginning of making changes to our architectures as well as our operations and our force posture more generally to try and assure the availability of space services in the face of threats. But I will say it is uh, is just the beginning. We're looking at a variety of ways, and I'm sure the panelists are going to talk about it, um, but essentially we break it down into three different areas. One, uh, enhancing the resilience of our architectures so that they are inherently less vulnerable to threats. Um, Second, uh, looking at defensive operations, so how do we defend those architectures overall. And then third, uh, which uh, Colonel Punjabi is going to talk about later, is how do we uh, reconstitute or, you know, essentially replenish capabilities if they're lost. Um, And this is not something that the U.S. is looking at doing alone. Um, We are working with our allies and partners to look at how we can share capabilities so that we enhance resilience, not just for us, but for our our coalition. Um, And we're also trying to leverage innovative opportunities that are in the commercial sector. Um, There's a a renaissance, frankly, going on right now in the American space industry. A lot of new innovative capabilities coming on board, uh, a lot faster timelines uh, and different types of technologies than the ones we may have traditionally used. And so we're looking at how we can leverage those more effectively. So I think when I turn to looking at you know, policy issues or, or just general space issues for the next administration, um, you know, I think really maintaining that focus and maintaining that momentum on enhancing mission assurance is really uh, kind of at the forefront of my mind. Um, you know, the architectures, the space capabilities and systems that we have in orbit today were in many cases developed like 15, 10, 15, 20 years ago uh, because of the way our acquisition system worked and sort of still continues to work. Um, And so they were designed for an environment that was very different than the one that we see coming in the future. And we prioritized cost and performance over uh, assurance or survivability. And so changing that mindset, um, you know, not just in our heads, but actually in our acquisition processes, is a long-term evolution within the department. And so... um, You know, while we have started on that path, I think it's safe to say, and I think most people within the government and within the department would agree that more can be done, and we can certainly be going uh, faster. Um, But I'll sort of I'll let my my other panelists talk about some of the specific programmatic things um, in that regard. Uh, Before I before I close, I just want to touch on three really quick um, other policy issues related to space, just to broaden the aperture a little bit, since I am kind of the token policy person on the panel. Um, First is organizational change within the Department of Defense. You know, I think this is an issue that the administration is going to have to confront whether it wants to or not. Um, There, uh, actually I brought the language with me today, there was a GAO report done earlier this year, and quite frankly this is an issue that's been studied for at least 15 years, if not more like 30, um, about the, 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 the challenges and the opportunities present in, in DOD's uh, way of organizing for space. Um, 
And whether you agree with the GAO report or not, um, the Congress has decided um, that they at least want to see some action. So um, interestingly, you know, in the earlier versions of the NDA, both the Senate and the House had a provision related to space organization. The uh, conference report just came out last night, and it actually requires the uh, DOD and the Office of Management and Budget to provide recommendations on strengthening the leadership management and organization of space within the department. So uh, this is something that we're going to have to tackle uh, one way or another. Um, the second thing I wanted to touch on are norms of behavior or rules of the road for how we operate in outer space. Um, I think it's pretty well understood in other shared spaces uh, like international waters, the value of rules of the road or norms for safety and stability to reduce the chances of misperceptions and mistrust. We haven't needed that so much in space because we were largely operating there sort of by ourselves or only with a few actors, uh, but that is changing. There are many, many more countries operating in space, many, many more commercial providers, and I think there's a growing recognition, including inside the Department of Defense, that having rules and norms for what normal, routine, safe behavior looks like benefits everyone. It creates a more stable operating environment, and quite frankly, it helps us do our job. Because if you don't know who the rule breakers are, or excuse me, if you don't know what the rules are, how do you know who the rule breakers are? And then the last thing I'll touch on is just the need to, the need to confront and, and sort of address a more transparent world, both when we think about looking up and when we think about looking down. Um, traditionally, uh, what's called space situational awareness, you know, detecting, tracking, uh, characterizing activities in space, has essentially been the province of governments. Um, that's not true anymore. There are a variety of commercial actors that are developing independent uh, you know, telescopes, radars, you name it, even space-based capabilities to um, identify and track objects in space. And that's going to challenge the way we've traditionally thought about military operations in a domain where before no one could really see us. Um, and that's going to require a, a long-term shift in our, in our cultural thinking and also in the way we do business uh, in space. But even, I think, more fundamentally for the way we um, think about military operations is enhancing transparency on the ground. Um, there's a growth of commercial remote sensing firms right now. You may be familiar with Planet, which used to be known as Planet Labs, which is planning to launch, I think, over 100 small satellites to have persistent coverage uh, of what's going on on the Earth. Well, think about how conventional mil or terrestrial military operations might have to evolve if they're constantly being monitored, even at a low resolution, but by data that's available commercially. Now, of course, the U.S. and other governments, you know, there's always a knee-jerk reaction to try and restrict or regulate capabilities that pose national security risks to us. But these systems, these technologies aren't just being developed in the U.S. They're being developed, sure, in, the, in friendly countries, but they're also being developed, frankly, all around the world. And we're not going to have a monopoly on this data forever. So, again, this is a challenge, perhaps not a near-term one, you know, first six months kind of a thing, but a long-term evolution that the department, I think, really needs to start thinking about as the world um, essentially grows more transparent around it. So with that, I'll stop uh, with my backdrop and turn it All over right. to Mark. Yeah, and so next uh, I want to turn to Mark, uh, and we were just talking before we came in here that we both uh, have some scars from the TSAT program, Transformational SATCOM. Uh, you've got a long background uh, in MILSATCOM working at Northrop Grumman, um, and particularly protected uh, military satellite communications. Sorry about that. Um, 
particular, particularly in protected uh, military satellite communications. Uh, and so, you know, we're at a point right now where the advanced EHF constellation of satellites, we're, we're getting near the end uh, of the plan. Uh, and, you know, TSAT was canceled uh, back in 2009. That was going to be the follow-on to advanced EHF. Um, we haven't had a follow-on uh, since then. Uh, we've just been building more of the same satellites. So what comes next? What should come next? Can you help us think through, you know, what's, what's needed in the next generation uh, for protected MILSATCOM? Sure. I, thanks, Todd. I, I, um, TSAT uh, was, a, was a great program for me. I, it was uh, um, one that we tackled a lot of, of Tremendous technical issues, and we've got it to the brink of of, uh, of starting. And uh, it uh, would have provided us some great capability. Um, and it's it's capability that's that's very needed. Audrey uh, mentioned the dependence that we have on on space. Um, our military forces today are more agile, more highly networked. Uh, and more reliant on space communications than than ever before. Um, our satellite communications enable our battle commanders uh, to connect with uh, sensor, sensor data and connect that sensor data to shooters to to complete the kill chain um, for delivery of precision weapons. Um, we're a, a society that's that's connected in our personal lives. You know, we carry these things around with us everywhere we go, and uh, we more and more expect that same kind of operations uh, in our military uh, operations. Uh, not all of our um, satellite communications traffic is protected or needs to be protected. Um, about 80% of the traffic is, is, uh, is perfectly suitable for carrying over commercial and, and unprotected military satellites. Uh, but the subset of communications that, that is used for strategic nuclear command and control and, and uh, tactical uh, warfighting in and amongst uh, the enemy uh, really needs to be in, assured uh, so that to ensure success in, in conflict. Uh, that subset needs, needs real protection uh, and resilience. Uh, we wouldn't consider, consider sending our troops into battle without armor, and we shouldn't send our forces into into a conflict without communications that are that have a, a similar layer of armor um, and as you mentioned Todd we have advanced DHF today uh, it reached IOC last year it provides uh, anti-jam LPI LPD um, survivable communications to our forces uh, it, it, but for both nuclear command and control and for thousands of tactical tactical users. But by 2030, uh, will that be enough protection? Um, we don't, most likely not. Um, we're going to need to adapt that capability uh, to increase capacity and resilience to evolving threats. I think uh, the DOD recognized that in the early 2000s with the start of the TSAT program and uh, the cost expectations uh, just just killed that effort um, and uh, technology now has advanced to the point where it can be brought forward uh, in a in a very economic way smaller platforms more affordable um, we've had a lot of conversations in the recent past about space resilience um, 
strategic uh, satellite communications is an important topic today because our adversaries recognize our reliance on our communications and that how critical it is to our military effectiveness. Um, um, and they're evolving their, their capabilities and developing means to deny us our communications, that deny us our ability to fight. Um, so how do, we, how do we go forward? We need to ensure that we, that we first drive the battle to space. Uh, there's all this concern about the space threats, uh, but we can't create architectures that open up vulnerabilities to low-cost, um, readily available threats, uh, things that might be available to peers, near peers, and, and even, uh, even uh, non-state actors. For example, uh, the proliferation of commercial systems uh, makes the, the uh, um, tremendously increases the availability of low-cost electronics, low-cost uh, ground terminals, um, and pr proliferates ground terminals. Uh, and those, each of those terminals can be used by an enemy as, as a jammer for if we're reliant on those commercial, commercial systems or systems, military systems that operate in commercial bands or in uh, commodity, uh, commodity uh, frequency bands. Um, those, those terminals are located uh, in, by the millions in the populated areas and, and, uh, and in the thousands at, at sea in uh, shipping vessels and, and cargo ships uh, so that the crews of those ships can communicate. So there's, there's not a place on earth, earth, or there won't be once these systems are deployed, uh, where we're going to have free reign of those commercial frequencies. Um, they have valid commercial reasons for being there, and so they're hard to identify, and attribute, and mitigate. Uh, so, so we need to keep the door closed on those threats. So we need, we need to maintain our uh, strategic command and control on uh, military, unique, military unique frequencies, make the, make the challenge for our enemies keep that bar high. Um, um, we can't uh, give a capability a protected label and call it a success. Um, so the advanced DHF system purposely closed the door on those kinds of threats. Uh, we need to continue that focus in our evolution. Um, um, we have, since the, since the demise of TSAT, uh, procured more advanced DHF satellites, and each of those is a, is a clone, a copy of the original design. Uh, and so we have not advanced our capability in, in, the, last, uh, in the last couple decades as a, as, as a result. And um, I think with our adversaries advancing their capabilities on a regular basis, if we, if we stay the same, we're actually falling behind. Uh, so we need to adopt a mindset that, we, that we're constantly evolving our capabilities and advancing them to deal with, the, deal with new threats as, as they come up. Um, fielding a, a satellite communication systems uh, takes years, and once it's fielded, it's, it's operational for decades. Decisions we make now, uh, we're going to be living with in, in, uh, in 20, 2050, probably. Um, 
so, so we need to plan ahead and anticipate uh, the evolution of the threat and provide the flexibility in our designs uh, to adapt to that uh, with uh, smaller vehicles, more affordable, that can be evolved in a more rapid pace. Um, um, yeah, evolution carries the additional benefit of keeping industry active, involved, and current. Uh, we compete for, for engineering talent, and uh, the last panel talked about, uh, talked about the DOD R&D investment since 2009, since the demise of TSAT, and it's re been reduced by 50% over that time. Um, that really makes it difficult for us to maintain the uh, creative, innovative, technical talent that produces these, these, the, the kinds of communications capability that, that advanced DHF brings to the table. So um, a, a uh, acquisition mindset that continues, that evolves continually um, is one that will uh, help us to, to capture and keep gainfully employed those innovative people that can, that can keep us a step ahead of the enemy. Thanks. Uh, and so next, uh, I want to go to Tom Carrico, uh, who's the Director of Missile Defense Project here at CSIS. Uh, and Tom, I wanted you to come on and, and talk a little about what is next uh, in terms of uh, space layer missile defense and missile warning in particular. You know, we're nearing the end of the, the Sibbers program, the space-based infrared system. Uh, I think the third satellite has been waiting for launch for a while now. Uh, it's supposed to, I think now they rescheduled it for January, it's supposed to go up. Um, so. What comes next for those programs, and what should we be thinking about, especially with a new administration, a change in party? Uh, there could be a renewed focus on missile defense. And I know you've got a few slides to walk us through as well. Yes, thank you, Todd. I think this will be good. I mean, I know there's a lot of space experts in the room. There's also uh, uh, folks who maybe know less, so I'm going to bring some pictures uh, to, to help explain uh, this problem a little bit. Uh, so I'm going to begin really explicitly uh, embracing the fact that this panel is, is uh, tailored to the new administration. Uh, and begin with really five questions uh, that the new administration is going to come in uh, and shape, I think, how they do missile defense. Uh, one, of course, uh, is uh, the disposition to Russia and China and how limited our efforts are going to be, uh, in addition, of course, to, you know, whether or not we continue to outpace the threat by, uh, by North Korea in particular, but also Iran. Second will be the relative priority of homeland and, and, and regional missile defense. Uh, third is going to be what we do in Europe uh, with the uh, uh, Aegis Ashore sites that the Obama administration has, has been putting in place. Uh, fourth is going to be kind of what we expect of our allies. And all, all these are going to tie back into the space thing here, uh, especially in terms of acquiring their own capabilities and contributing to ours in various ways. Uh, and the fifth one is kind of the uh, new technologies or new capabilities, uh, directed energy but also uh, a space sensor layer and maybe uh, a space test bed as well. And that's really what I want to dig into uh, today. And the thesis is that, you know, notwithstanding the fact that just about all of our uh, missile defense assets are terrestrially based, land and sea, uh, that missile defense is, of course, very much a space problem. Uh, the ballistic missiles spend most of their time uh, traveling uh, to and, and through space. Uh, two of our four missile defense systems are exclusively dedicated to exoatmospheric uh, intercept. Uh, and our various sensor network, of course, is going to be looking up in different ways to uh, find, to first detect, 
and then to track and hopefully discriminate uh, the, the threat cloud. And here's just a couple quick pictures to illustrate that. You know, when a missile launches, its, it's, its plume is going to be seen by our DSP satellites. Uh, but that infrared is not going to get you very far uh, after launch, and so you're going to rely upon uh, other things. For our tracking and discrimination, we've then got this flying junk pile of debris, the missile body, uh, all this, this junk flying through space. And how does a, a missile defense system go up there and find the warhead uh, that we need to, uh, to go kill? And that's really the problem of tracking but of discrimination. And as I said, we're reliant almost exclusively on, on terrestrial radars, ship, but also uh, upgraded early warning radars at several sites that are advantageously located but not perfect in terms of covering all the sort of things we want to do. The most obvious limitation is that they can't see over the horizon. Uh, and so there's these gaps, the mid-course gaps, and you can go and build a lot more radars. It's a little bit difficult to cover places like the Pacific uh, to go up and and track with greater precision all the things that you want to track as they come in. Uh, but that's, uh, that is a difficult proposition, and we, again, not all, there's not always land where we want to have land uh, to do that. And so where, for decades, uh, first BMDO, the Ballistic Missile Defense Organization, and, and uh, SD, actually SDIO, BIMDO, and MDA have all identified the need for a space uh, sensor layer. You know, first it was called SIBRS. Um, uh, Sibbers Low, or Brilliant Eyes before that. Uh, now, of course, it's sort of STSS, things like that. Um, but the difficulty is that we're not, there's no plan in place for, for continuing that effort. Uh, there's ideas, but there's no funding plan uh, for that. Some other alternatives that MDA and others have been pushing out there uh, are to take some airborne uh, infrared, airborne UAVs, say flying at very high altitudes, uh, looking up and having their own infrared uh, sensors look at the threat clouds coming in, say flying off the coast, flying in the Pacific, looking at a, a, a threat cloud from North Korea, and then relaying that information onward. It's greater discrimination. You can uh, you know, watch the countermeasures deploy if you want to do that. You can identify with infrared and other things uh, what you think uh, is the, uh, the pieces that most need to be destroyed. Or you can have, alternatively, and I know the lighting in here is bad for this, um, a per very persistent uh, sensor in space, in orbit, looking down or looking sideways, as it were, uh, again, with a different kind of phenomenology than the, the land-based radars, uh, with infrared, looking sideways and comparing the objects against the coldness of space. So this is kind of two different domains from which to do that that add to and supplement uh, sort of the reliance upon uh, land-based radars alone. Here's kind of the difficulty. This is our funding pattern. Uh, over the past uh, 14 years, uh, going through the FIDEP, for MDA's efforts in this area. And the red, the big red, that's STSS. Uh, and so the difficulty is MDA's, you know, first it was Sibbers Low. Uh, now we call it STSS. In the future, maybe it'll be something else. But that funding profile has gone way, way down. Uh, and so MDA has been out there saying, you know, if you really want to have improved tracking and discrimination, if you don't want to fire so many GBIs, so many interceptors at a single missile uh, for failure to discriminate, you're going to have to have um, different phenomenology and a different vantage point to do that. The, f the funding profile, however, is not on track there. But to their credit, folks know exactly what the, the issue is. So why, you know, why a space sensor? What does it add specifically that 
that uh, land-based sensors or sea-based sensors do not. Again, it's that potential for birth-to-death tracking, following the missile not merely from, from detection, from its launch, um, but uh, throughout its entire uh, flight profile. A different angle, right? Looking at things not merely from below, looking up, but from a different perspective. Uh, as I mentioned, watching the countermeasures, uh, different technology, uh, and by having a better idea of where to look, you can kind of direct your other radars, your land-based radars, in a higher uh, energy output in a very particular place, rather than scanning, as it were, the entire uh, horizon. Uh, and, you know, all of that contributes, this isn't an academic exercise, all of that contributes to lower shot doctrine, and uh, having to fire fewer interceptors at a, at, a, at a target, or rather fewer interceptors at a, at a missile cloud. And it gives you a lot more space, greater engagement space. You can shoot the missiles earlier, which, again, also contributes to uh, lower shot doctrine. And this isn't merely a, an academic exercise as well. Uh, as I'll mention here in, uh, in a moment, uh, they did that with, with Aegis in 2013. Uh, and using the STS, uh, STSS satellites, the demonstrator satellites, were able to uh, launch on remote, fire that missile not on the basis of an organic radar signature from the ship or something like that, but on the basis of what the satellite was seeing before it, again, c- even came over the horizon. Uh, there's a lot of uh, benefits uh, beyond this, you know, supporting that shoot-look-shoot, shoot, as I mentioned, uh, that uh, uh, could engage a, a lower-shot doctrine, you don't have to have the host nation uh, limitations. You all, everybody sees China uh, hyperventilating about the potential for the Tippy-2 radar in South Korea. There's lots of political reasons for that. They, don't, they also don't like the, uh, the idea that that radar would be so close to them, uh, looking at other things. And so you kind of avoid that by having these, uh, these in space. And also by having kind of dedicated uh, platforms, uh, you're not going to be reliant upon an Aegis ship doing picket duty uh, when it could very well be off doing, uh, doing other things. And so this is, in 2013, a demonstration of just that, and it expanded the, uh, the, the covered area of a single Aegis ship dramatically. And so that, that boosts the capabilities of our deployed uh, SM-3 uh, and also other interceptors today. It's not merely a long-range problem. This also contributes to shorter-range uh, or medium range uh, type type things as well. There's no silver bullets, of course. Uh, there's no magic wands, uh, and so, you know the as we've heard alluded to already here, uh, our potential adversaries' advances in space uh, also mean that, that anything you put up there could potentially be a, a target to be dazzled, uh, jammed, uh, destroyed as well, and it could be a very expensive target. Uh, the orbital dynamics means that in some ways it's static, and they know exactly where it is uh, at any given time, too. So that has potential uh, limitations. All the technical reasons why you want to have different phenomenologies, different vantage points are one thing, but nothing comes uh, without a cost as well. Uh, as I mentioned, it's possible that some of this might be gotten at uh, on a more uh, or less expensive way, and from a different domain. And the, the, the prospect of, of really loitering high-altitude UAVs doing some of the job, not all the job, but some of the job uh, of, a, uh, of a satellite is, uh, seems to be a promising one. And so there's several uh, past experiments that have been kind of toying around with this, but several kind of things going on now in terms of can you get uh, a UAV 
with uh, enough of an altitude, enough persistence to stay up there and just loiter for a long time and wait for a, a missile or something to go over. And this isn't, again, an academic exercise from the political side. Uh, the Trump uh, administration has, uh, through one of its defense advisors, said that this is exactly the kind of thing uh, that they might be looking at. Now, they said that in Colorado Springs uh, to a, a space audience, uh, but I ha- and, and Representative Lamborn was there, and he, uh, he seconded it. Uh, but I have to think that this is something that, um, uh, on the basis of this, on the basis of the fact that everybody knows it kind of needs to be done, I think could, could very well uh, bear some fruit. And so what's the path forward? The path forward is Congress has mandated a study, a kind of a missile defense review that's due in January of, of 2018. I wouldn't be surprised if this is going to be uh, a piece of that. Uh, I, I think that restarting an STSS-like layer, or brilliant eyes, whatever we're going to call it, uh, is, a, is a good path forward. Uh, but there may well be more imaginative ways. CHIRP, you know, commercially hosted uh, payloads that you could put up a lot of, a lot of these smart brilliant eyes, as it were, uh, in a more distributed fashion, and that gets you a different kind of resilience uh, as well. And there may be a ways in which we can uh, partner with other countries uh, to host uh, some of that as well. But the bottom line is, um, you know, we've, we've been hesitant about putting space and missile defense in the same sentence uh, for too long, notwithstanding the fact that missile defense really is uh, a space problem. And I think that as we go into a new administration, we want to take a fresh look at all these things and see what uh, space platforms can contribute to this mission. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Uh, how can we improve operational capability in smaller satellites? So that, that's really where we, we've done a lot in, in that area. So we can actually show, so for example, uh, the, the upcoming satellite that we're working on. Now I'm not going to tell you that we are providing exquisite solutions, that we're going to meet all the requirements that are out there. And in fact, the way we build our requirements is very different. We don't go through the JROC. It doesn't go through what uh, people call the JSITS process. So the JROC, if you were at the last panel, um, the joint requirements process can take up to a year to two years to actually develop a, a requirements list. When you're trying to build satellite capability for an urgent need, so when ORS was started, the first thing we did out the door was ORS-1, which was an imaging satellite, which was to satisfy an urgent need identified by CENTCOM. We need imagery over the, the area of responsibility, over the AOR, and we need it now. So uh, now didn't actually happen within that year. It happened about three years later. But... You know, how do you get those requirements figured out in a very rapid process? And the processes that we had to develop rapid requirements weren't in existence at the time. So we have a process to actually come up with. We work with the community to come up with what we call threshold or good enough requirements to get us there. And that process t- takes 60 days. You're still working with uh, U.S. STRATCOM as our primary organization that provides our requirements. But you work with U.S. STRATCOM, you come up with the requirements, and then when you only have a program that's only going to last two to three years – you don't really have a lot of time to change your mind about what it is that you need because you've kind of, you know, again, in the last panel I talked about, you know, when you build or even we build uh, Sibbers or we've built the, the comm satellites, you know, that the satellites that are on there now, we figured out those requirements 10, 15, sometimes 20 years ago. So for ORS, we're, we're just trying, we're trying to figure out what the requirements are in two, three years. That's a whole lot easier than trying to figure out, prognosticate into the future 20 years out. 
So that's what makes ORS a little bit simpler than some of, some of the larger programs. Those are, and I'm, I'm never gonna say that we need those larger programs. There are, the exquisite solutions are definitely required, but there's other ways to do that, and ORS is kind of filling that gap to get there. So ORS 1, for example, again, what we did, we didn't necessarily advance the state of the art. We took an existing sensor off the, off, off the U2, and then we put a satellite bus around it, and then we launched it within 40 years. And that particular system provided capability to CENCOM for five years. Over five years, it provided capability. And for those of you who are familiar with the Intel process and how we task national satellites, it can be a very long time to form from um, because their, their primary tasking comes through the national process. So for the warfighters, the guys out in the field in the AOR to get the taskings through, it can take a longer time than what they really need on their timeline of need. So by having their own satellite, tactical ISR from space, this was really the first satellite to do that, they had their own satellite, they could task it, they owned the images, and they could declassify on their own timeline of need and actually share imagery faster with their allies than what we can do with our own national assets. So so there's, there's two things to ORS. We can speed up the acquisition process, and we actually create new con-ops, uh, concepts of operations, and new tactics, techniques, and procedures to help accelerate and provide capability to the warfighter. The programs that we have upcoming, uh, ORS-5 is a space situational awareness system. Um, it's not necessarily to replace the system that's currently out there, um, but it's to actually provide some sort of gap-filling capability. The current system that's out there, a space-based situational awareness system, uh, was launched uh, in 2011, I believe, um, off a, a Minotaur IV rocket, which uses uh, expired or stored uh, peacekeeper motors. And that particular program was about, by the time that satellite was done, it almost cost a billion dollars. Again, it had a lot to do with the fact that requirements changed. We tried to add more stuff on it. Uh, you'll hear a lot about requirements. It's a, it's a major issue and concern. So that system is coming to a close. We haven't figured out necessarily what we're going to do with the next system yet. So you want something cheaper and smaller and a little bit faster to provide some capability if SBSS fails before we expect it to, before we actually get the new system online. So ORS-5 is a space situational awareness system. It's being built by MIT Lincoln Labs. And really it is, it's just a telescope in space with a satellite bus wrapped around it again. Um, what I find interesting about this program, I call it a Shanaz size sack. It's only about five feet tall, which is about how tall I actually am. And it's going to go off a Minotaur four out of Cape Canaveral uh, next July, July 15th. And the, the idea is that we, we started that program in, let me actually check my notes to make sure I got the right date, 2014. And we're going to launch that one in 2017. So from a space acquisition perspective, that is pretty darn sporty. <laughs> and we're doing that for under $100 million. So that includes the satellite, that includes the ground system, and that includes the launch vehicle. Uh, the launch vehicle was acquired for uh, approximately $30 million from Orbital ATK, again, a uh, Minotaur IV. And what's interesting about that one, we procured it using commercial procedures and using, it's going to be an FAA-certified launch. So instead of going through the standard um, launch mission assurance procedures, which are very valid and very valuable if you're launching a billion-dollar satellite, but you don't necessarily need that if you're only launching 100, well, it's not actually, actually the satellite's not even $100 million, but if you're going to launch a smaller satellite that's only going to last, expected to last or required to last two to three years on orbit. So you don't need to spend as much money on mission assurance for something that's really small. So that's one of the ways you can do that. And then 
also that creates makes the system more simple. It's not taskable, so it doesn't move around a lot, has no onboard propulsion, and it just sits in low Earth orbit and looks up the geosynchronous belt. And then data from that satellite will automatically go into the JSPOC and actually help JSPOC, which is a joint space operations center. So for those of you who saw the CNN space, uh, the, the space documentary just the other night, um, those are the folks charged with figuring out, tipping and queuing, what are the issues, do we see something out there that we don't expect to see? So th there's ORS-5, a very simple program, and if you wanted to continue to do that, you could evolve that capability, you could build two to three more satellites, because it doesn't actually, be, due to solar exclusion angles, because the sun will actually go into the telescope, you need about three to four satellites to get the full capability, but if you could build those and you could probably tweak a couple things here and there, there you get your resiliency in terms of you actually get to evolve your technology using that smaller satellite bus, using that as a starting point. Um, the other program that we have going is also called, is called ORS-6. So we like to use ORS slash numbers, if you, have that, if you haven't noticed. And that is also, uh, it's a technology demonstration to kind of prove out the payload that we want to use for the WSF, so Weather System Follow-On Program Microwave. Uh, for those of you who are not aware, DMSP-19, uh, bit the dust. It's, it's not working the way we would like it to work anymore. So there's a lot of interest in, you know, weather overall. And this particular satellite is what we look, it's going to look at uh, ocean surface vector winds. And the payload that we're building for this, or it's already been built by Jet Propulsion Laboratory, we had a bus that we had already developed. So again, we talk about resiliency and how do we get things done faster. We had built a bus most of the time, buses are heavily, highly integrated with the payloads, so they're sort of developed together. One of the things that ORS really wanted to do was look at plug-and-play architectures. You know, you can't take a cable or a payload or a bus infrastructure from one bus to another payload and hook them up and hope they're going to work. It's, it's a major change. So the idea of building with open systems architecture is taking all of the great stuff we have with our computer systems, not Apple all the time, but, for example, your PCs, your USB cables, and being able to plug and play pieces and parts from those two things. I called it a Lego set. Um, just makes it easier to do and to change and to modify your systems. So we had built a bus under another program. That, that program, we never had enough funds to actually build the payload, so we canceled that program, but we're using that bus which was built for a synthetic aperture radar, and we're reconfiguring that bus for a weather satellite, for a weather payload. Two completely different missions, and we're actually showing that we can do that. That program actually started in February of this year, 2016. That's when my boss said, go ahead and make it happen. And we're launching next November. So again, in a two-year time cycle, that's a whole lot faster than what we typically see with other programs. Now, we get, we get a lot of buys. We don't necessarily build payloads that are going to last five to ten years on orbit. Our payloads last two to three years. So we don't, we're not going to provide the full capability, but we're going to get you partway there. And we're going to get a threshold just enough to get us by. And that's how we can get into reconstitution and improve resilience in the future. Um, the final program that we're working is also responsive, is responsive manufacturing. I love this program because it kind of pulls in some of the autonomy that we've seen uh, in some of the, uh, if you've been to a missile manufacturing line, uh, we're work partnering with Raytheon in helping to kind of take their lessons learned in improving and uh, quickly building their missile components and their missiles to, to satellites. So we're using, a, we're using this line to look at 
building in digital assurance or missed assurance at the beginning. So you have cameras and sensors and automated checklists so that if a person is putting the wrong part or uh, putting it at the wrong level, torquing at the wrong point, there's actually an error which has to be overridden or it has to, somebody has to come in and go, okay, well, what, what did you actually do here before we actually go on? Where sometimes we wouldn't necessarily find that out until after the satellite failed on orbit. So this digital assurance builds it in. It actually makes it cheaper. Again, it makes it faster. With this semi-autonomous manufacturing line, we can actually build a CubeSat within, you know, uh, within a year or less, depending on what it is we're actually trying to accomplish. So there's a, a lot of stuff going on at, at ORS. We can do things very differently. We have a, a lot of different authorities that helps us streamline. And everybody has a lot of different authorities, but we also have that maneuver space that the leadership and the culture in, our, in the space world actually allows us to execute them. Thank you so much to each of our panelists and uh, your remarks. Now, I, I want to go to the Q&A session now, uh, and we're going to go with questions from the audience. Uh, I want to start, though, uh, with one question that each of you feel free to respond to. We're at a point now, um, you know, with missile warning, SIBRS, uh, and advanced AHF for protected comm that, you know, we're looking at follow-on systems. Is this uh, the time where, you know, we need to look at fundamentally changing architectures uh, for these follow-on systems? The trend has been uh, that we build a small number of very large satellites, expensive satellites in geostationary orbit. Um, you know, looking at threats in the future, uh, those large uh, satellites uh, that are very expensive uh, and in small quantities, they, they make for juicy targets uh, for an adversary, uh, for a variety of means of attack. Is now the time that we need to start transitioning to alternative architectures, and what would that look like? Open it up to you guys to respond. Well, I'll just start, and I, I won't get into the specifics of the architectures, but, uh, I mean, Todd, I think you're exactly right, and we are looking at that. Um, I mean, especially as you get to the end of the program cycle for a particular, you know, uh, system or, or capability, I mean, it's a natural, like, inflection point to look at whether an alternative architecture is um, the right approach. Um, the mission assurance taxonomy that I alluded to earlier talks about a variety of different ways that we can strengthen resilience, whether that's through, you know, more proliferated capabilities, uh, capabilities in a diverse set of orbits, um, or through measures like reconstitution of capabilities. So, I mean, we're from a policy level, we're we're not we're trying not to prescribe a point solution, uh, you know, to the services about what. Uh, particular architecture we think is the right one. I mean, everyone has their own opinion, and there are, you know, just as many opinions in the department as there are offices. Um, but the point is we need to prioritize mission assurance, right? We need to make sure that the capabilities we need are there when we need them in the face of threats. So whatever the right solution is, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, moving to a variety of smaller satellites that are more responsive, like the one Shanaz talked about, or whether it's hardening, you know, and making more... Um, uh, um, survivable, the, the really large satellites, um, you know, I, I don't want to prescribe that from a policy level, um, but to essentially provide the guidance that, that this needs to be taken into consideration as we look to the future. Let's see, from a, from a protected SATCOM perspective, I absolutely think it's a, the right time to look at a new architecture um, and to take advantage of technologies to create space nodes that are smaller and lower cost and uh, can be proliferated. Uh, we, that there can, they can be 
launched as standalone uh, standalone satellites or, or payloads that that provide highly protected service that can be hosted on other vehicles uh, that are performing other missions or or uh, uh, or uh, on international vehicles as well um, provide compatible uh, services from international platforms uh, and that would serve to improve political resilience uh, um, a, a big factor in political resilience I think application of some of the acquisition techniques that uh, uh, Colonel Pun Pun Punjani uh, mentioned um, from the ORS program would help to enable that kind of thing would allow us to create a program structure that builds a smaller uh, more agile platform that can be adapted uh, over time as as technology improves and as we learn more about the threat um, uh, and having more nodes improve service it gives you small more look angles into a theater um, enables higher capacity to a theater there's a lot of benefits that come from uh, changing the architecture to have more nodes in it you know I, I I guess I, it's my impression that the, the the more popular perception of space security has changed quite a bit in the past five, ten years. Um, and so from that standpoint, uh, it might be a, a good, you know, I think the, the general awareness of the space security problems uh, is, is much more widespread and it's captured folks' imagination. Uh, they say that, you know, when you run out of money, you have to start thinking. Uh, and there's been lots of ideas out there on the missile side uh, for, you know, doing microsats or commercially hosted sats for, for low Earth orbit. Uh, unfortunately, I think thus far, um, MDA in particular has just not been doing anything new, smart, cheap, or otherwise. Uh, and so they've, they've just been put on hold. And so I think the answer to the question is yes. Uh, it is a, a very good time. Uh, it's hard to imagine that you can ever really get away from the exquisite geo uh, early warning. Uh, but there may be a lot that can be done, uh, you know, in a, not in a smaller constellation, but a bigger constellation of cheaper things at low Earth orbit. Around it, yeah. And, and I think, you know, overall, we're looking, at least in the Air Force perspective, um, from architecture, we are really uh, substantially trying to look at how do we really architect for the future? Uh, do we change everything substantially now? Or do we try to do what we can now and then figure out what we need to change for substantially in the future and figuring out that new architecture? Uh, prior to kind of really current day, nobody had really proven that we could do a whole lot with small sats or with CubeSats. So it really took a lot of those pioneers uh, in the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force who were just slogging away trying to make these small sats work and these CubeSats. And I'll tell you, there was, there was a lot of cultural impetus against them doing that. And they still, though, I mean, I call them space heroes because they really did, um, they did a lot to, sh to kind of prove and, and stretch the technology in an area that there wasn't a whole lot of push for. And they proved that they could do stuff with a smaller capability. No, they can't pull, pull off the, the exquisite geosynchronous solution, but they can provide some capability with a larger constellation. They can do a lot in LEO. And because of that and that, that growth that we've seen, uh, General Hyten, when he was Air Force Space Command commander, uh, created the Space Enterprise vision of how do we improve overall resilience of our capabilities. And he looked at, he's looking at you know, changing the space mission force, how we actually operate and fight 
fight with our, our assets uh, in and through space? Um, how do we change the acquisition system? It's, it's very unique. Usually uh, space commanders, Air Force Base Command commanders, don't necessarily focus on the acquisition piece. But there's a lot in there on, you know, looking at smaller, less complex satellites. Let's pull in technology faster and how we can actually do constellations and changing how we do things to improve the resilience overall. I just want to add something to just build off of what uh, Colonel Punjani just said, which is, you know, I talked a little bit about the commercial renaissance as well going on um, right now, and a lot of that is enabled by some of the technology development that was done in the government. And, uh, you know, we would be uh, losing an opportunity if we didn't look for ways right now to take advantage of those capabilities, especially as they're just beginning uh, to be developed and fielded. Um, I mean, you know, I don't know that every company that's got a business plan out there right now is going to live to survive, you know, five years or ten years or whatever, but some of them will. Um, and they're, uh, you know, it's a lot easier, you know, if you've got a constellation with 600 satellites going up, uh, imagine what you could do with 600 hosted payloads, right? And you can't do that once the satellites are already on orbit. So, I mean, there will be fleeting opportunities that come from industry that are uh, worth taking advantage of right now. Yeah, it was uh, just... In a talk earlier uh, this week uh, with uh, someone from Iridium, and you know they're launching the Iridium Next constellation. They built it in with the capability of taking hosted payloads, uh, but they needed the hosted payload within a couple of years, and our acquisition system can't produce a payload <laughs> within a couple of years uh, to give it to them. So we've got to we've got to reform how we do things if we're going to get some of these opportunities. So with that I'll open it up for questions from the audience and Victoria you had your hand up first um, you want to go ahead hi Victoria Sampson secure wealth foundation um, Audrey you talked about the importance for DOD in terms of ensuring that um, you're, we're not provoking unnecessarily any kind of conflict in space I'm wondering how shows like CNN's recent discussion of space where they went off on Russian kamikaze satellites and kidnapper Chinese satellites. Does that help or hurt DOD in the idea that you guys are trying to prevent conflict? Thanks for the question, Victoria. Now, you know, despite what um, other countries might think, the U.S. government doesn't control what CNN uh, puts <laughs> on the news or in their documentary, so, um, you know, we can only control the interviews that were provided to them. Um, you know, I, I watched it yesterday, and I... Um, you know, actually, I thought it was pretty good overall, but I, I do agree with you. My one, my one critique of it is it was a little bit sensationalized, and it, and it focused on, you know, an arms race in outer space or war in space, you know, to a degree that I, I think, I don't know. I don't know that it was unhelpful. I mean, I think it was great to just raise the awareness of the problem, but I think one of the, the, the you know, one of the ways in which thinking about this area can become too reductive is if we focus too much on space for space's sake or, like, space on space. You know, like, it's not about, like, is my satellite better than your satellite, right? I mean, yeah, it's nice if we have, I mean, not just nice. I mean, it's critical, of course, that we have, um, you know, as much bandwidth, for example, as possible, you know, in key regions when we need it. But, like, if we're... For example, in a scenario in the South China Sea, we're going to be much more reliant on our SATCOM bandwidth than the Chinese will be because they may not need to rely on SATCOM. So the more important comparison is how do our capabilities, uh, how are we assuring our capabilities in the face of those threats, which may not be in space. Most of them, frankly, are coming from the ground. Um, and so, you know, I, and I think, unfortunately, if, if you just kind of look at the wave tops, there's, there's too much of a, a, a natural response to just like, you know, 
my space weapon is bigger than your space weapon. And, and unfortunately, I think a little bit of that did come out in this series. But I do hope that, you know, with a little bit more thought and some more serious, um, you know, policy analysis, folks will, will recognize that, you know, it's a little bit more of a, a nuance or a complex problem than that. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and to that as well on the CNN thing, I, I will confess I only got to watch the last part of it. I need to go back and watch the early part. But in, at the end of it, they did come back to the fact that I think General Hyten uh, was trying to be very clear that a kinetic conflict in space, uh, it, everyone is a loser. Uh, and so we can't let it get to that. Therefore, we have to back up from there and say, how do we prevent this from ever happening in the first place? Uh, which gets back to deterrence and maybe changing our architecture and our policies. Uh, I think the more likely war in space is not a kinetic one. Uh, it's going to be electromagnetic. Uh, it's going to be non-kinetic type threats, jamming, things like that, dazzling, blinding satellites, um, where it's you know it's it's more complicated to deal with and more complicated more complicated to deter. Um, okay. Any just, other? Just oh, go ahead. Little additional comment. I think those electronic uh, attacks are much more likely in particular because they're reversible. Um, an enemy can, can apply a jamming threat and uh, get the effect that they want and then undo it and you know, we in some cases might not even know. Um, uh, but those, those threats are much lower cost to the enemy and they, they have uh, much less in terms of uh, escalatory um, impact because they are reversible. Up front here. Uh, so many, excuse me, uh, many commercial and uh, government systems depend on GPS to function. Um, so it seems to me that that's, a, for an adversary, a likely early target. So what's the backup plan? So who, who would like to talk about GPS um, and, and alternatives and resiliency? Yeah. I can say a little bit about that. I mean, the United States isn't the only one that has a mm -hmm. system for positioning, navigation, and timing. Uh, the Europeans also have their Galileo system. Russia has uh, their GLONASS system. China has their Beidou system. Uh, and Japan and India are both developing regional augmentation systems as well. Uh, and, and by the way, I, not to mention the myriad ground-based ways of, of PNT as well, which I have to admit I'm not quite as familiar with. But one thing that we're looking at in the Department of Defense is how do we make it such that our forces are not just using GPS, but are also able to use the signals, for example, of Galileo. Uh, you know, it's a much higher uh, level of violence, if you will, than an adversary would need to go to to not just take out the U.S. GPS system, which, by the way, would require a pretty significant level of violence, uh, but then also to take out, say, the European system. So, um, you know, whether that's a deterrent or not, it certainly would, uh, like I said, raise the level of violence and therefore potentially increase the, the harshness of the response by the United States. And so... Uh, you know, essentially we're trying to make sure that we have multiple sources of PNT, uh, that our forces have receivers that are able to uh, receive signals beyond just GPS. Okay, up front here. Thank you. Uh, there was a recent media report about the uh, astonishing number of space debris uh, that has grown over time. With the increase of satellites and launches, uh, that problem will probably only increase. Uh, what can we do to minimize the risk or protect ourselves, uh, both existing and future satellites, against space debris? 
Yeah, so um, we had a program called ORS3 where we launched uh, 29 CubeSats uh, all in one launch. It, it had, we had the record for the no, most number of satellites launched for about two weeks before, before the Russians beat us with 32, I believe. Um, and, you know, the Joint Space Operations Center just kind of, they kind of, I'm not going to say they freaked out, but they were highly concerned because they couldn't track all of these CubeSats that are now out there in LEO. Some will degrade and fall out of the, you know, and just go through the atmosphere and burn up in the atmosphere. So there's a lot of concern, at least with the proliferation of small sats, especially in low Earth orbit, which is uh, starting to become a very prime real estate for a lot of these, these particular systems because it's a lot cheaper to launch there than it is to launch anywhere else. Um, we also have the ISS in low Earth orbit. So, again, a lot of concerns there. So there was a, a big effort within the ORS office uh, in coordination with 14th Air Force and JSPOC and Air Force Space Command to look at how do we improve CubeSat identification at least, uh, to come up with some passive at least uh, passive techniques or active techniques to support a, sort of put a transponder, an information friend or foe transponder like we have with our aircraft on CubeSats. Uh, that can be difficult because CubeSat real estate is, is pretty, it's pretty prime, so you don't want to put a whole lot of stuff on there that you don't have to. You don't have to power it if you don't have to. So there's a, we did a lot of work to kind of look at, again, but it's going to be more of a coalition of the willing. Are you willing to actually, you know, put this capability on your, your satellite? DARPA's uh, program is called Cubit, CubeSat ID, and we're looking at opportunities to fly out this particular capability to, sh to prove out that it can be used. Again, some systems are passive. You're just, it's more like you've got a material on there. It reflects and shows, shows you who and what you are, um, and others are active, which requires onboard power. Uh, and just I'd like to add on to that to talk about some of the efforts that are already either underway or in many cases in place um, at the national and international level to look at mitigating the creation of debris. Um, so there are a set of standards that have been adopted by the UN for, um, they're called the Space Debris Mitigation Standards, and they actually are very similar to a set of standards that the United States already has in its own policy called the U.S. Government Orbital Debris Mitigation Standard Practices, um, and they prescribe essentially uh, it's, a, it's only about seven different rules in terms of how you should both operate your satellites and also think about um, deorbiting them or putting them into what are called graveyard orbits at the end of their life exactly for the purpose of minimizing the creation of long-lived debris. Um, because these are um, guidelines that are adopted at the UN level, um, in theory they're uni universal. Um, in practice, you know, implementation is somewhat mixed. Um, we in the United States um, are actually getting better. In fact, I can say uh, that um, I think uh, the next year of launches at DOD will be compliant with the U.S., completely compliant with the U.S. government's orbital debris mitigation standard practices, which is actually the first time um, we've done that. Um, and so this international standards that are reflected in national legislation and regulations are slowly but surely being adopted and implemented by both um, government actors and the private sector. And so I while I, I hear what you're saying in terms of the challenge is increasing, and, and believe me, there's a lot of effort looking uh, at what we need to do beyond these standards, the very first level is just how do we minimize the creation of noob debris, and that is improving, if slowly. Sure. Uh, John Harper with National Defense Magazine. On uh, sort of a broader programmatic level, what are the key budgetary challenges that the DOD space enterprise is facing in the coming years, and how much concern is there that the money won't be there to 
to fully carry out these uh, modernization plans or meet these modernization needs. Thanks. So, Audrey, can you tell us what's in the FY18 fight app? <laughs> I say, Todd, I thought you were the budget expert. <laughs> you know, I think you know the the big challenge, of course, is the budget caps uh, on the overall defense budget. Um, we got a new administration coming in, a uh, new Congress uh, coming in. Uh, and so there's a lot of optimism now that we're going to see the budget caps, at least for defense, uh, go up, uh, perhaps significantly. Uh, we'll see if that materializes. You know, we've had these caps for five years now, uh, and the three budget deals we've had have only made relatively minor adjustments to them. Uh, and it's always been symmetric uh, increases in defense and non-defense. Um, new administration, new Congress, we'll see what happens. But I think that's the, the big challenge uh, is what do you do with the budget caps? And then, you know, if you get more for defense, how do you spend it? There's a lot of talk of, you know, increasing force structure, you know, 350-ship Navy, uh, increasing the size of the active duty Army by about 90,000 personnel. Um, you start funding those things, that will quickly eat up uh, any increase in your defense budget. Uh, and so the question then becomes is you, there's, there's lots of needs uh, in space and for future space systems and follow-on space systems. But, yeah, it, it, there's still a lot of uncertainty if the money will be available. Anyone else? Yeah, just, just to pile on on that, um, it would be a whole lot easier to execute our programs if the budget was passed on time. Um, continuing resolution really hurts. Um, I don't have new start programs, but um, for programs that do have new starts, they can't start. And uh, last year, we didn't actually get funds to execute, like the funds that we were supposed to get to execute until February or March. But yet somehow at the same time, our, um, the thresholds that we have to spend our money by, those don't change. So we're red for expenditures and obligations. So then they start to look at, okay, let's start, you know, pulling out. We have other bills that we need to pay because we weren't able to pay them earlier. And so your funding gets taken, and then it creates more program instability. So if budgets got passed, it, we're ready to go on October 1st. Um, it would make life a whole lot easier. There's just so much churn as we try to figure out what we're actually going to get in the end and try to make sure that we're not over that threshold before budget actually gets passed. One last question up front here. Hi, Scott Klumpner from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Um, question about disaggregated architectures. A couple minutes ago, everyone kind of thought that was a good idea. Uh, putting that into practice seems like a tremendous act of willpower on somebody's part. So in the case of, of an AHF follow-on, for example, that we decided it's going to be disaggregated instead of a Battlestar Galactica, uh, who would make that decision? Who would make that act of willpower? We heard maybe it wasn't OSD policy. Maybe it's, is it industry? Is it SMC commander? Is it, is it Congress? Um, I don't know. Audrey, can you start by first, I know that your office has come out with a taxonomy. Yeah. Uh, and so there's disaggregation, there's dispersion, there's proliferation. They all mean slightly different things. Tell us about that, and then yeah, where, yeah. where does change start? Well, just I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll really just talk about disaggregation, I think, which is the idea of, of um, taking, um, you know, you have a variety of requirements when you build any satellite. Um, and uh, sometimes they are, they're, well, they're different. And so the idea is uh, disaggregation is how do you separate those requirements so that they're not all being met by the same satellite, but perhaps being met by several different satellites. And the topic of the day is specifically on the commingling of systems related to nuclear command and control and nuclear warning 
versus um, protected but inherently tactical, uh, you know, communications and theater-level missile warning, right? And so there's a question about whether or not you are inviting attacks, for example, on um, on strategic systems if they're commingled with uh, tactical systems uh, because the adversary may think that they're fair game because they're being used to support, um, you know, conventional requirements. So that's kind of at the policy level why this discussion is even happening. Um, you know, it's a great question that you asked, and I'm, I'm trying to, like, scratch my head. You know, the way the Department of Defense works, it's a complex beast um, with many different decision makers in, in the process. Um, and I, I would hesitate to actually give you a definitive answer because I'm sure I will be wrong. Um, I mean, there is, at the end of the day, someone who makes that decision. But uh, quite frankly, with an issue of that magnitude, I mean, it would be debated and discussed in a variety of different ways, you know, the Defense Space Council, for example, uh, before, you know, really being finalized. So this might actually highlight the, the need for <laughs> better space governance within DOD that Congress is, is calling for. We need clearer lines of whose job is it and who has the money to do it. I'll talk about the question without answering it because I, I don't know the answer, I, uh, but I'm eagerly waiting to see who, who makes that decision. Uh, but I, I think that the word gets uh, misused a, a bit um, because I, what I what I intended to talk about was more distribution of the assets um, and not necessarily disaggregation. I think um, that that there are there are trades. There are some there are perhaps benefits of uh, in separating strategic and tactical requirements into different platforms, but there are also very um, significant cost benefits to keeping them combined on a single platform meant most of the most expensive elements of the satellite are common to the two sets of requirements um, um, so, some exotic antenna antenna um, coverage capability uh, and a complex signal processor are required for both strategic and tactical functionality and so to to just say that they're, we're going to separate them and create two separate stovepipes, um, you, you create, um, create cost issues, um, and, and I think you, you create a burden for the user platforms that need to be involved in both strategic and tactical uh, conflict. And so I would uh, promote a distributed constellation where maybe each node could, could be switched between the two, but to make two separate independent things, I think, um, deserves more debate. And uh, I'll be with you waiting to see who gets to make that decision. Yeah, the, the service acquisition executive is just one PP. So as Audrey mentioned before, it, you're going to build an acquisition strategy. You're going to say, this, this is the capability that you ask for, right? Not necessarily all the requirements, but this is what we want. This is the capability that we want. So the, the warfighter gets involved in that part of it. What, what do we want? And then the acquisition guys are given the list of what we want and how do we figure out how we're going to do that. So you're going to build your acquisition strategy. You're going to build your architecture. And so many people are going to have an opportunity to talk and debate and input and tell you you're wrong and then you have to come back, go back and forth. Um, so I would tell you everybody gets to make that decision. Everybody is part of that process. Everybody has a vote. 
everybody has a voice. Um, I think that was one of the reasons why they were trying to move some of the acquisition decisions out of OSD and down to the service level. So for the first program that we're actually going to do with weather system follow-on is actually going to be uh, the acquisition executive approval, that final approval authority is going to be at, uh, at SAFAQ with Ms. Costello rather than up at ATNL to at least shorten some of that timeline and shorten who all gets a vote. But uh, if, if there's a lot of votes, it takes a whole lot longer.